Hi, this is Gary Meese, The Case Against, episode 53. I'm going to be uh, covering a couple of different topics today, some of it to do with West Memphis 3. Uh, just got through listening to Bob Ruff's uh, Friday follow-up on his first part of his interview with David Jacoby. Uh, it doesn't get better <laughs> it, the, the, as this goes on with listening to this. Uh, listen, today, when we're talking about the all-important timeline here, when uh, Jacoby and, and Hobbs were together, when they were separate, and how long Jacoby was gone from uh, Hobbs was gone from Jacoby's presence on May 5th, 1993. It, it becomes clear and clear that the timeline just keeps getting shorter all the time. Even, even Ruff, who likes to try to dial it back to suggest that, you know, all their interaction was over between 6 and 8.30, he, he'd like to have it that way, which would give him plenty of time to do all these evil deeds that he doesn't quite come out and say it, but he certainly very much like just discredited journalists like uh, Mara Leverett have done. He, they like to suggest that, oh, this is, and, and uh, Berlinger and Sanofsky, of course, in their Paradise Lost 2 movie, that they embarrasses them now. I think they just assume it didn't exist because they spent a whole movie making Mark Byers look guilty without actually going into any real facts of the case. And it turns out, of course, that Byers has a perfectly good alibi virtually the whole evening. Actually, he has a great alibi. His presence is not is almost fully accounted for. It's fully accounted for for virtually the whole evening and the little bit of time that he was is not accounted for is negligible. It, it wouldn't count for anything. Um, Hobbs is not that fortunate with an alibi, but, and I'm, you know, I'm not really happy with the idea that he needs to have an alibi. But let's let's make it clear that West Memphis Three, none of all of them have had, all of them have failed alibis. Uh, Eccles had two, one failed in court. Uh, Miskelly had two, both failed in court. Baldwin never offered any in court, but his alibi that he's offered since then does not hold up to any kind of scrutiny. So he doesn't have an alibi. And, and uh, Eccles' other alibi with the phone call girls uh, doesn't hold up. Just it just wasn't absolutely refuted in court. Of course, it wasn't brought forward in court because there was no alibi there. But you know, he could. Twenty-seven years later, he can say, "Oh yeah, I had this alibi. I was talking to these girls." Getting off on that. Let's not get off on that tangent too far. Except, it's not so much a tangent because these alibis are supposedly are the reason that Ruff uses 
for justifying a continuing investigation into who actually killed Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers on May 5, 1993 in West Memphis, Arkansas. And he wants to suggest, obnoxiously so, without actually, and without actually going so far as to saying it, but, you know, that maybe a stepfather did it, which is a totally unoriginal uh, conclusion. It's very poor. The, the argument there goes back to, again, a single hair that may or may not be his. And beyond that, there's really no evidence to speak of. No, ev I mean, if you go digging around and trying to make something out of nothing, I guess you can come up with something, but there's really nothing there. And then, the, so, in a sense, he needs an alibi. Well, what's his alibi? David Jacoby is his alibi witness. And what does Jacoby say? Well, even according to Ruff, you know, he gets home from work. He's, he's taking his time, getting ready, getting, uh, you know, relaxing for the day. Hobbs shows up at his house sometime after 5. Well, it wasn't immediately at 5, so, you know, was it 5.15, 5.30? Even Ruff acknowledges he doesn't really know. Jacoby, can, it, Terry's out looking for uh, Stevie Branch, but Jacoby convinces him. Jacoby convinces him to uh, help him out playing uh, Learning Pretty Woman on the guitar. So they do that for a while. Now, this is ranged anyway, according to uh, Ruff. He, he's so flexible on the time and it's almost meaningless, you know. I mean, he makes it sound like it could be anywhere from five minutes to close to an hour, and, and Jacoby actually described it as being over an hour at one point, then maybe 45 minutes. But, you know, the problem there, even there, if you go 45 minutes, 35 minutes, we're already getting very close to 6 o'clock. Then, uh, and... Jacoby describes Hobbs leaving between 6 and 6.30. He did so fairly consistently. So let's say even at... The problem is... you. This is the problem. I mean, what are you going to do with this information? It's very inexact. I, you know, not that this would ever go to court, but let's just imagine... It actually went to court, and your witness was David Jacoby. Would it be? Would he be a witness for the defense or for the prosecution? As a prosecution witness, as we're going to see, he's pretty worthless. And for the defense, again, he would be he would be fairly worthless. With with the exception of the fact that, you know, they could make him look so bad in court with, with the inexact times or so uncertain with his inexact times and descriptions at this point that, you know, um, and that, that would have been true back in 2000, 
seven when he gave his his initial report to police, which again was fourteen years after the initial events. I'm not really dumping on David Jacoby. I don't. There's nothing wrong with nothing wrong with the fact that he is having trouble recalling exact events from either fourteen or. 27 years ago. I mean, it's 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 not that important in terms of uh, his character or his veracity. He's just doing the best he can after a long lapse of time where he hasn't been questioned about it. His memory hasn't been probed. Um, Jacoby describes this some sort of technique he pulled where he sort of got this story out in his Friday follow-up and it sort of got this story out of Jacoby that almost sounds like some sort of hypnosis session that he put him through. And uh, so I really question whether some of this story that's come out, which doesn't really contradict what he said before, except on a few details, but um, uh, this story that's come out is Ruff's version of events or Jacoby's, because much of it seems like it was suggested to him. Anyway, the timeline. six Between 6 and 6.30, if you went to court, it would be easy to, you know, according to what you say, Mr. Jacoby, you know, Terry didn't even leave the first time till 6.30, according to at least one of your timelines here. Yeah, well, yeah. Possibly. And then he, he was gone for a while. How long was he gone? Jacoby doesn't say. Then you've got two different versions. One has one return and another has... You have two or three different versions. Did Hobbs return in the space between the time that he returned for the final time on the search? And, and when was that? Again, it's not clear. But according to Jacoby's statements, uh, Hobbs came back. In 2007, Hobbs came back to his house several times between the final, between initially leaving and coming back uh, for the final time, for the final search. And Jacoby joined him on, on one of those searches. Jacoby describes two searches after if Hobbs left at 6.30, he's gone for a while, he comes back, Jacoby and Hobbs drive around for 25, 30 minutes, which is what Jacoby describes. Then he leaves again. What time are we talking about now? It's, it's, got, it's after 7. And it's probably more like 7.15 or 7, could be 7.30, could be later. But at 7.15, Jacoby describes, a, uh, one of the time he describes to uh, uh, Ruff that Ruff found it unacceptable was a 7.30 time frame for being at the foot of uh, Goodwin at the, uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, entrance to the Pipe Bridge and uh, Robin Hood Hills. And it's possible, I'm not saying he did, I'm just saying it's possible that 
Jacoby's conflating some memories of two different trips. In other words, perhaps it, perhaps he was at there at uh, seven thirty, which is what he said that he, he could. He's more likely just simply confused about the time. But he could, you know, take go to court and ask these questions. I don't know what his answer is going to be. Could he have gone there at seven thirty? Uh, at that at that spot, the entrance where the uh, trail goes down to the pipe bridge. I don't know what his answer would be. It doesn't seem unlikely that he could simply get these times mixed up and the, these occasions mixed up after almost 30 years. But maybe he didn't. And I'm I, I'm I'm gonna apologize a little bit for even getting into the speculation. But we do know that. Hobbs and Jacoby went out the second time. This, 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 they went out this first time for 25, 30 minutes. Well, this puts us well after 7 o'clock. And, and then Hobbs leaves again. Presumably drops Amanda off. Then goes and, uh, and then pops up again sometime. And again, it's not clear. You you know, if you bring witnesses after 30 years to the stand, I don't know what they would say. But uh, Hobbs is at some point he's over at uh, the over in the vicinity of the Moore Byers home around the time the police report's being taken. Police report was taken around 8:10. Uh, and then there was a police search, which he made. He participated in on some level. Uh, Byers describes uh, Hobbs being there. Uh, after that, and Jacoby, that seems to be the final trip that Jacoby is describing. The point being is the window of opportunity there is maybe an hour where Hobbs is not accounted for. And I will, I'm going to qualify the, that again by saying that it's not clear from Jacoby's statements in 2007 that even that's the case. Uh, so, you know, it's possible he describes Hobbs stopping at his house several times uh, between the first, the fir their first trip out together and the in their last trip out together, well, that's more than once. Several times is more than once. Now, if it actually got to court, what would Jacoby say? He probably would say he doesn't remember. He's not sure. I don't recall. I'm, I'm guessing, but that's probably what he would say. The point being is is that if this is all we've got is a witness who, who seems to be describing a timeline that at best offers a shaky, somewhat shaky alibi to somebody who doesn't, again, who doesn't really need an alibi, but certainly a feasible alibi to somebody. And certainly uh, enough to, a shaky enough alibi that if you went to court with it, it would raise serious questions. I believe it would raise serious questions with the jury about whether this would be feasible at all for somebody to accomplish what his detractors would say Hobbs accomplished, which is finding the boys, killing him, 
doing all the fairly elaborate things he did there that would have been done there by himself, putting the boys in the water, getting back in his truck, going home, getting cleaned up, showing back up at uh, Jacoby's house, not giving any memorable signs. I mean, the fact is, is, is Jacoby doesn't remember Hobbs being muddy. He doesn't recall him uh, changing clothes. So the fact that it was nothing happened there that was memorable enough to suggest draw any sort of suspicions. And in fact, nothing that Hobbs did drew enough suspicion to get draw suspicions from anybody until this little hair showed up in 2007. He was on the scene. He wasn't hiding out. He's mentioned a grand total of four times in Devil's Knot, and, and then, and honestly, in passing, I, I think there is one quote in there. Other, th other than that, it's uh, Marl Everett didn't look at him at all. <coughs> and the reason is because he wasn't, he, there was no reason for anybody to think of him as being a suspicious character. And this little hair didn't really change that, except it did. Anyway, the good news, the good news in all this is uh, we've got the uh, second part of an interview with David Jacoby to go on uh, Hog, uh, Ruff's podcast and the Friday follow-up to that. I don't, obviously, I don't know what's going to be said in the new interview with uh, David Jacoby, but... We already we've already gone over the vital timeline on this, so anything else is going to be, I don't know, his his impressions of Terry Hobbs, his relationship with the Hobbs Hicks family. I I have no idea what, how they're going to fill out another hour on this, and I can't imagine it being that gripping uh, in terms of audio or video or that informative. I feel bad for the fellow, and and you know, Ruff is dragging him, dragging him through this, making him miserable, for no good purpose, and I say particularly no good purpose because, you know, um, Jacoby did give some information that was not in his statements. You didn't get the impression from his statements. Uh, to uh, of the nature of the these search trips that he and Hobbs went on, if you listen to if you listen to the interview, you get the idea that they it was a very painstaking search that they went on. They drove around the neighborhood very slowly, looking for the boys. Uh, there's no sense that there's some sort of frantic killer here. Uh, Jacoby does not scribe, describe Hobbs as screaming that he's going to kill the little boy if he gets a hold of him or anything like of that nature, which seems out of character. Unless, you know, it, does, it seems out of character if he would have done that. Now, Byers, yeah, I'm not trying to run the man down, but he, he, was, he liked to run his mouth. But, uh, and I, would, I don't think he, in a million years, would... kill his child. I, I don't think that. 
Um, but, you know, there's a way of talk that people do. The, uh, and none of that's related. You don't get the impression there's anything except this very slow, methodical search uh, all through uh, the, the neighborhood, on over into 7th Street, on over into Ingram, up and down those, the, all those streets in that neighborhood around Weaver Elementary. And uh, it doesn't argue that uh, that the, the it doesn't make it sound as if it was just some little quick uh, search made. So I would have an so I have an alibi. I was searching so people won't be looking for me. You don't get that impression at all from this search. You don't get the impression at all that that Hobbs is just killing time with Jacoby. Uh, so he'll have an alibi. There's no indication of that at all. Anyway, Ruff has a Jacoby interview. And he has a Friday follow-up. Then he's talking about he's going to have some f- fan of the page. Maybe he's he's not really sure where he's going next, but he's talking about maybe you'll have some fan of the page who's done some sort of timeline connecting up which I've already done I've done that the only thing I don't have is is in my book is my book Blood on Black I also have another book Where the Monsters Go two volume set uh, and I rev- that covers the case extensively I revise, condense, combine those into a one volume uh, the case against the West Memphis Three Killers. I have the Hobbs timeline in my book. And what I don't have is the latest Jacoby statements. And there's possible, there's, it's possible there's something I missed uh, in my researches that's actually there. That might add another element to it, but I, offhand, I'm not really sure what that would be. Uh, you know, I was pretty complete, but I, I still learn a little. Some things become clearer to me with time, and even after doing all this studying of the case, I, some things become clearer. And... Uh, that's true with the Hobbes timeline. The it becomes clear that it's not clear. It's honestly what it comes down to. But what's also clear is that you know if you if you take somebody who is leaving somebody's house at six thirty and they're showing up at somebody else's house at eight, and in the interim they show back up at your house. For an unspecified amount of time. In in the interim, what's clear? I'm about to sneeze. Maybe not. What's clear is that uh, what's clear is that Hobbs did not have the opportunity to commit these killings. Ruff 
even rough zone time timing you know when he puts it as late as seven and and back over at the, at the buyer's house around around eight a little bit after eight somewhere close to eight ten it doesn't give him time to have committed these crimes and, and cleaned up and do, done the rest of it that and that's rough's very uh flexible timeline there okay that's enough on the west memphis three enough rambling and muttering and mumbling and so forth. Let's see what I can do on the Centoya Brown case. I watched uh, what Murder to Mercy on Netflix. And I, I realized it, it, it's an old it's a an old documentary that's been bolstered a little bit with some new footage and you know, slightly different emphasis. Uh, that they it's an unauthorized look at, at this particular case, which is a Tennessee case, Nashville, uh, 16-year-old Centoya Brown was accused of shooting, uh, for lack of a better term, a John, Johnny Allen, in the head, back of the head at his, at his home. Uh, it's pretty clear from looking at this that Mr. Allen was asleep. Uh, she left with his truck, uh, with his uh, guns, um, maybe some other thing. I, I didn't study what all she took from the house, but she took some things from his house and left. Uh, she blamed, she claimed self-defense, which is only explainable in that she may have been in a state of hypervigilance, but it doesn't really mean that there was actual real self-defense going on. Um, she was under she was under the control of uh, what she thought of as a boyfriend, but was in fact a pimp named Cutthroat. The fact that he has a nickname like Cutthroat, and he's getting you to uh, put yourself out on the street to sell yourself to other men ought to be a clue even to a 16-year-old that maybe he might be a pimp. Uh, Cutthroat has uh, since been killed by somebody else, which is good riddance. Uh, anyway, she spent a long time in she spent a long time in prison and got quite a bit of sympathy. If you look at the early footage, there's somebody, it's a, somebody who, a young woman who is very manipulative, um, very quick to figure out angles and play upon them. And um, really knows how to turn up the drama. A lot of eye rolling, a lot of faces, a lot of quick quick switches in mood. She she without studying it, she has learned how to manipulate people. Uh, no doubt this you know there's there'll be some naysayers here, but basically 
She had a very poor uh, early start in life. But basically, she was with the woman she considered to be her mommy from the time she was six months old uh, up until, well, up until the time of the killings, except she ran away from, she was repeatedly running away from home. Uh, and there's a father there, there's a mother, uh, both parents working, there's no sign of any sort of drug addiction. Now she alleges there was some sexual abuse of some sort coming from somebody. It's a little un- it's a little unclear where that is, and I didn't I haven't read her book. I'm not going to be buying her book. But I, I, I did listen to some subsequent interviews and got the, the gist of a lot of this. She doesn't seem to take a lot of responsibility. She says it's a terrible thing that she killed this man. She doesn't seem to take a lot of responsibility <coughs> for the fact that this was a totally uh, inexcusable killing. There was no self-defense involved, except perhaps in her own mind. I will give her that. And I say that because what we see in the film is her being examined. A lot of it is about her mental examinations, which is interesting and surprising. But everybody, you know, it's a minor, but we're actually seeing the mental uh, examinations while she's in the justice system of this uh, young woman. And what they seem to be suggesting is that she, you know, focus in on borderline personality disorder shows up in the frame. And he's talking about, uh, what he's really talking about is the phenomenon of splitting the psychiatrist or psychologist, whatever he is, where she, the moods change, there's, these vol, there's a volatility of mood with that condition. Very quickly change from... Uh, Adoration to uh, abhorrence. Go from the like the best person in the world. There you be, you go from being the best person in the world to being the worst person in the world in this person's mind. It's a uh, very volatile, again, very volatile and changeable mental state. I say this from some experience. I've had some dealings. More dealings than I would like to have had with with people with borderline personality disorder, uh, and it's very disturbing. It it's hard to for the average person to grasp what that's it's actually about. They can seem quite sane, and then seem quite crazy in the next instance. And uh, there's a tremendous amount of anger. A lot of violence, some of it's directed toward themselves, some directed toward others, and a lot of impulsivity. Uh, and a lot of just simple confusion, uh, very changeable in, in their uh, goals and opinions and so forth. It's hard to the only thing that's really consistent is the inconsistency of the affect, how they how they uh, are perceiving themselves, 
how they're feeling about themselves, how they're feeling about you, and how they're perceiving the world. That is the one thing that is consistent throughout. As I say, I'm without getting into details, I've, I have experience with this. Um, with Centoya, you can see this uh, in a relationship with her mother. And she seems to idealize her quite a bit of the time. But then when she's down on her, she's really down on her. And, it's, it, it, you know, she's a teenager through a lot of this. But it, uh, it's obvious that she is, uh, when she's not loving her mommy, she's hating on her. Okay. Now, the... The, the defenders bring up this idea that she is suffering from fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which I'm not that familiar with, but I, I'm familiar with fetal alcohol syndrome, which I thought was more of a physical manifestation with including low IQ with certain physical characteristics. Uh, I don't find the idea of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder to be uh, unlikely or I don't find it to be some sort of wild stretch you know excessive alcohol consumption uh, is, is probably going to have some effect on a fetus I don't disagree with that concept of all and it could and does it could it affect brain development it seems I, I again I have no I have no uh, reason to think that, that it doesn't. S should some recovery be possible? Se certainly seems that way if they're well-treated and well-fed once they get outside the, the womb. Uh, the brain has a possibility for growing and repairing for a number of years before it becomes set. The, th the thing about it is they present this case that this young woman, 16, 17 years old, is irredeemably damaged by this disorder. No, she can't help herself. So it raises a question, what do you, what do, you do with that kind of information? Here's a woman who, young woman, here's a teenager who's killed somebody and honestly, it's a cold-blooded killing. It's really all it is. And now you're going to say, well, she really can't help herself. She doesn't have that, the, the kind of control over her, her emotions and feelings and self-regard that she should have. So, you know, we really need to take that into consideration. Well, okay, let's take that into consideration. Does that mean she needs to be out on the street? It sounds like she's a danger to society. I mean, she would be a danger to society if she is not able to contain herself and she is prone to killing people. So is that an argument for not locking her up? It wouldn't seem so. But And th there's also this idea she's never going to get, she hasn't gotten better and she's never going to get better. And the truth is, is borderline personality disorder, if indeed that's what she have. And all these labels are simply labels. They're approximations. Uh, 
but there's been enough study of these conditions, these various personality disorders that they you can there's been enough study that you can see what the life course is going to be for somebody with BPD. And generally speaking, it's not good. However, they do tend to age out. It's recognized as in criminals aging out. People who are chronic criminals in their 20s often just can't be bothered by the time they're in their 40s. You know, it's more trouble. than They don't have the energy. They don't have the motivation. They don't have the hormones. They have a little better sense. They understand it doesn't work. So it's not true for everyone. But many, many people who are in trouble in their 20s I mean, there's a lot of really stupid stuff I did in my 20s I would not begin to think about doing now. And that was me as an adult, married, even as a parent, held down a professional job, and they still did dumb stuff. Would not do it now. Uh, I'd probably still do dumb stuff, but that's, well, that may be the human condition. The... The, the, the point being is that you, those people don't necessarily get better. If, if you've got fetal alcohol spectrum disorder as an additional uh, diagnosis, so in other words, a dual diagnosis, you've got the BPD and you've got the uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, whatever the, the ac- an acronym is for that. You get those two together and you're talking about... Uh, in a certain sense, a sort of hopeless case. Not going to get better. Not Certainly not anytime soon. What do you do with the person in the interim? Well, the argument is, is they shouldn't be locked up. Well, where should they be? <coughs> now, turn around. She's in prison for, what, 14 years? 12, 13, 14 years. I'm not trying to do an exact timeline on this, but she came, She was convicted when she was 18, and I think she got out. What, she hasn't been that long. She was convicted, and she was going to get 50 years. She got 50 years in prison. There wasn't a lot of sentencing latitude, and I think that's probably the biggest problem with this. Is is they should they should give the give should have given the judges more latitude on sentencing of juveniles uh, adjudicated uh, in murder cases and adjudicated as adults. You know, if they're if they're convicted of that crime, then you know they're going to get fifty uh, you know a half century. That's a pretty steep sentence by almost any standard. Uh, and uh, there's a, there's, there are ways of mitigating that. I have, no, I have no problem with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Even recognizing that most of the people that are going to be in teenagers who are going to be put in that situation or that kind of sentence have going to, will have committed some sort of heinous crime. 
and really should be locked away for their own safety, everybody else's safety for a very long time. But 50 years may be too long. <coughs> In some cases, it won't be long enough. Um, but, you know, what happens is we show, show Centoya, and the movie does the documentary on Netflix, does a very poor job of showing what possible kind of transformation she's gone through. Uh, you know, the idea that she went to school and she's participating in some social programs. And she's, she's always, obviously, she's always been articulate and uh, she's intelligent, obviously intelligent, uh, can be well-spoken when she chooses to be well-spoken. That's always been there. So we see that again and somebody who's presenting themselves as, you know, a mature thoughtful, caring, insightful individual. But wait a second. This is somebody who had borderline personality disorder, apparently. Why show that why show that in the documentary if it wasn't the diagnosis? And and has this irreversible sort of brain damage that has afflicted her since she was a baby. And she does seem to have gotten a bad genetic rap. Her her uh, her fam her mother's family is a bunch of crazy, suicidal drunks and drug addicts. Not a good start. Not a good place to start at all. But her mother didn't raise her. Her mother had apparently minimal involvement in her life after the first few years. And apparently there was some going back and forth between the adoptive home and the natural mother up to, say, three, two or three or four years old. It's really very unclear. And, and I, I, again, I haven't read the book, and it might be clearer there, but... Uh, it's not as if she didn't have some stability. There was some instability, but there was some stability as well. So, anyway, are we supposed to believe that this woman who has these uh, inc incurable, irredeemable personality defects suddenly, by the force of her own will, and the rehabilitative powers of the Tennessee prison system is now a, a good citizen, worthy of emulation. And this is the thing that really, really, really comes down to. Why is this woman a hero? If she's in, indeed in re rehabilitated herself, and I'll maybe, maybe she has. And maybe, you know, I'll fur go further and say, you know, if she has found she's seems to be highly religious. I understand people can have real conversions and, and by acts of faith be powerfully transformed. I have no doubt about that. And if that's the case with her, that's great. But 
why is she a hero? Why is she somebody we should look up to? If the ten, if the prison system somehow managed to rehabilitate one person, as unlikely as that seems, that that's the only person that's ever been rehabilitated, then that might be worth noting. But I think a lot of people get into prison. Not as many as should, but a lot of people get into prison, and maybe not for the first time, but at some point they go, I've had enough of this, which is exactly what seems to have happened with Centoya. <coughs> and what happens is they, they, stop doing, they stop doing what they're doing. They stop hanging out with their old gang. They go get a job. Or they go get married or whatever uh, but you know they find some stability in their life they stop committing crimes they straighten out now this happens with many many people she's not that unusual in that respect where she is unusual is in her uh, what's that what's that quality they they look for in tv anchors q or whatever that is she has a certain something about her that makes her appealing and attractive. Now, I can't describe what it is. I think some of it is the histronics that she has at her command, where she can amp up. She's able to go up and down the scale of emotion in a very sort of artful way and draw people in. She has a charisma and I, I don't deny it. However, I don't think that is a justification for the fact that there's really not that much to admire here, uh, except you know, wishing her. The appropriate response should be wishing her well and hope hope that when she gets out of prison, that things go well for her. And I'm not so sure she's off to a great start. So we'll see what happens. I, I'm not trying to predict anything terrible, but I'll be very surprised if this somehow I've been wrong before, and I'll be and I, I honestly hope I'm wrong this time. But you know, all this could blow up very, very easily and very quickly, and I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if it does. And people like Kim Kardashian and Rihanna, and. Uh, who was it, LeBron James, who, you know, and it's notable that this girl is, uh, she's not, she's, she's mixed, which apparently created problems for her, particularly since her mother is, her adoptive mother is quite black. Uh, so she's going to stand out in that family. Uh, and I've seen a picture of her half, her stepbrother, her brother, her adopted brother. I've seen him on there, and he's he's also very dark. So she's going to stand out in that family. She's probably going to stand out in that neighborhood, and apparently it caused some problems for her. Uh, I I will say that you know it underlines some of the problems in American society. People haven't really, you know talk about the new era and everything people still haven't 
quite accommodating themselves to the mixing of races, and I'm not sure they ever will um, in any general sense. I think it's specific cases, it, some it, specific cases is one thing in general. I'm not so sure people were that crazy about it. And another thing that struck me during this was her early exposure to pornography, which have been totally, totally unprecedented in any other era. Uh, the only way that you would have, she would have had any sort of, in past eras, the only way she would have any sort of exposure to that sort of material was if she was actually involved in the trade herself as a prostitute or as, as a pornography actress. And you wouldn't be, to, and, and to be 10 or 12 years old or whenever she was first exposed to it. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Obviously, there are child prostitutes. But this was a girl who was living in a, a, a middle class household. She was not a prostitute at that age. But she got the absolute wrong idea about what sexuality was all about and her appropriate response to men based on. A, According to her, based on watching pornography, I think it, it it's underlying of a uh, an extreme example of a very unfortunate effect that this has had on society in general. And I wouldn't be surprised if we're not seeing more explicit cases of this in the future, where women, young women, simply have the wrong idea. I think men already have the wrong idea what it's all about. Young men have the wrong idea what sexuality is all about on this basis. I think a lot of them do. And uh, according to some things I've gone in, I've read, and I don't see how it couldn't affect women as well. Uh, men are more avid consumers of visual pornography, in case you haven't noticed. Uh, Women have their own sources of, you know, that sort of material, which is a little more socially acceptable since it's not so visual. Uh, romance novels, for instance. I haven't read, have I read one? Probably not. I've read passages, I think, out of curiosity. And it's kind of a, it's a kind of a pornography for women. Uh, I've gotten far afield here. I am going to talk briefly because I want to get back in the West Memphis 3 case and my next thing about uh, a case I'm studying right now. Uh, the, it's an old case. R Reuben Carter, dating back to 1966. And I've read a couple of books. Uh, one is... Media, media Meddlers, which is by, by Vincent D. Simone, who was the lead detective on the case. And the other is Murder, Myth, and Marketing by David Axelson. I also watched the Hurricane movie with Denzel Washington, which I di didn't recall having seen before. And I like Denzel a lot. I don't know why I haven't. 
I, I must have seen it because it just seems like it's something I would have wanted to see. I like boxing movies. I like Denzel Washington. I like the Bob Dylan song. And then uh, I was listening to the podcast, uh, The Hurricane Tapes. Now, and I've read, I've also read The 16th Round by uh, Reuben Carter. Now, I will say that the two books I mentioned, Media Meddlers is, you know, a more personal story of the detective. It's a good read. It's 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 well written. It's interesting, and it, you get you get the major certainly get the major facts of the case, and you get a fairly scathing uh, report on how the story was manipulated in the press, consciously so by people with in the New York media, including people working for the New York Times. Uh, Murder, Myth, and Marketing is written by an attorney and it is a fantastically detailed breakdown of the case. Uh, occasionally wanders into the weeds. I didn't mind that, but a lot of readers will be might be thrown off by that. It's not quite as easy a read in a certain sense, but it's very thorough, very effective breakdown of the absolute lie that uh, the many, many lies told by Reuben Carter and his supporters and the absolute f fact of his guilt and the murder of three people uh, with John Artis in Patterson, New Jersey in 1966. Very good book. The, the Hurricane movie, if I had just seen it at the theater, I, I think I would have really enjoyed it. I'm watching it at home on a DVD since I happened to have the DVD and uh, I couldn't find it on any of the uh, free, free streaming services. Um, it's really a joke in this presentation of the case. Great performance by Denzel Washington. A very, a, a really a, an example of a mixed, mixed opportunity, missed opportunity in that the actual the case is a lot more fascinating and interesting than is presented in the hurricane movie it's basically a black and white it's basically presented as no pun intended i've already said it black and white but it's a, you know this sort of good you know good guy bad guy good denzel bad cop presentation and they don't name vincent de simone they uh, specifically, they change his name. They make him They make him, you know, Italian, but not that, not the same name. To his the character that character is presented in the the movie is totally different than the impression you get from uh, any of the other sources. I would say even from Reuben Carter's own uh, materials. He hates De Simone, but you do get, you do get an idea of a different sort of person than the relentless uh, pursuer that's described in uh, the hurricane. And I'll say that, you know, 
Well, the most fascinating, one of the most fascinating aspects of the case is there were there were two would-be burglars who were prime witnesses in the killings. Uh, Al, Al, Alfred Bellow, in particular, was walking toward the, the bar to buy some cigarettes while they were breaking into this place. He decided he was going to go get some smoke, so he walks toward this bar, and he sees Reuben Carter and John Artis coming out with guns in their hands and getting to their uh, white Dodge Polaro with New York State. He didn't get into all that. Exp- but anyway, they, they get into their car, white car and drive off, and he flees. And then he proceeds to, you know, he tells police he saw this, but he didn't, at first he doesn't identify Reuben Carter. And then later he says, yeah, he did see Reuben Carter doing there. Then, you know, he testifies that Reuben Carter was there. And then he, then he recants, then he recants his recantation. And he tells, he must tell 10 different versions of the story by the time the whole thing's over with. I'm, you know, there's some people in the West Memphis Three case that that are almost as bad, but he actually take, goes beyond that, and it's it's just a fascinating, the uh, fascinating pair of small time petty criminals, Arthur Dexter Bradley and Alfred Bellow, that are almost a comedy team of. If you were trying to figure out how to screw up a criminal case, get those two guys involved. And ultimately, they weren't crucial to proving the case because there was sufficient other evidence, a lot of it circumstantial, very, very strong circumstantial evidence, enough strong circumstantial evidence, and you don't have to have direct evidence. I mean, you don't have to have, you know, the physical evidence. And get and let guess what they had no DNA. They had no fingerprints, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they had the observations of of people, but they had enough observations of people of different parties, and enough things were going on. <coughs> and Reuben Carter managed to you know try to concoct his his own alibis that blew up in his face ultimately. And, and, and you know what? But but finally, on some sort of uh, very narrow, narrow legal gr- grounds, a, a very a, it, probably one of the most liberal judges in the whole country, who had already sort of predetermined where he was going to go with this, opted to set aside these convictions on on that basis, and. Uh, New Jersey chose not to re-prosecute because they'd already been through two trials. They were convicted twice. So this Reuben Carter, by that standard, is not exonerated. He's not innocent. He's twice convicted, sentence set aside, but they didn't. He's not exonerated, and. Part of the point be part of my point being is that you know this case is one that is sort of a classic, and I like these classic cases. It is a classic case of 
so-called wrongful conviction, when you actually look at what the case is about, you look at the facts of the case, there was no wrongful conviction. What you had was you had wrongful actions by, my, somebody's picking up my garbage outside, the, uh, you, have, you have actions, wrongful actions by the media, in this case very high-powered media, they give the totally wrong impression of what the case is all about. You have a lot of lawyers from a hotbed of social activism and, uh, and various social groups and various groups of supporters, and all based in New York, who you know are 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 the New Jersey suburbs up there, who are all. You know, all involved in making sure that this guy goes free. And if he weren't black, they wouldn't care. It was all about his race. And the fact it was a racially motivated, it was almost certainly a racially motivated killing. Ruben, somebody shot a white bartender. Uh, uh, a white guy shot a black bartender earlier in the evening who was the stepfather of Eddie Rawls. Reuben Carter's good friend, who's around him on and off all evening. Reuben Carter hears about this. He's out drinking and carousing around on a Thursday night, uh, as he was wont to do. And apparently they decide they're going to go show Whitey, and they go into uh, Lafayette Grill, not very far from this other bar. Apparently there are a lot of bars in that area and go in and blow another, blow the white bartender there away with a shotgun, shoot two guys through the head, one of them dies immediately, the other one lives somehow, and then shoot a poor woman in there, Hazel Tannis, they shoot a poor woman there with a shotgun blast. Uh, she was shot four times uh, by, uh, with a pistol. She survived for about a month and finally died. And all that was on the a basis of no, nothing. The only thing that was motivating that was sheer racial revenge. Anyway, I've gone on long enough today about too many different things, probably. And I'm going to shut it down. Thank you for listening.